0: You're listening to the In Focus Church podcast. We believe God is going to meet you right where you are today as you listen and dig into His Word. To say this is a day that is special would be the understatement of the centuries to say that this day is different and yet somehow we have come to this time if you've lived any number of years We come to this time of celebration in the church calendar, and the calendar of the world to celebrate the risen Savior again and again and again. And all over the world, every people, tribe, nation, and tongue today celebrate the church of Jesus Christ that we just sang about that was born because of what Christ has done. That church that bears his name, the body of Christ, all over the world is celebrating the fact that Jesus is alive. That he is risen, yes. That what he said and what he promised is true, that he is in fact the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And because of that, those who have accepted that truth, that Jesus is the Savior, the one and only way to the Father, those who by grace and through faith have accepted that are now resurrected people. That's who we are. And that's what we celebrate today. But there's more to this day than the exuberant celebration of Christ's resurrection. There's more to this day than Christ being risen. As powerful as that is, every moment in life that we celebrate and that we remember, every memorable moment in our life is made more memorable by what led up to it and then also by what comes after it. See, what we celebrate today is made most memorable, yes, by remembering also what led to the resurrection, and then also talking about, and not just talking about, but living what comes after the resurrection, and that's how we live our lives today. You can think about that even in your own lives whether it's a career or a dream job or profession, maybe it's being a physician or a musician or athlete. It could be becoming a parent for the first time or a grandparent for the first time. Our most memorable moments in life, which are some of those, are framed by what preceded them and the promise of what they'll bring. I'll say that again. Our most memorable moments in life are framed by what led up to them and the promise of what they will bring. So when can something as miraculous, powerful, and world-changing as the resurrection of Jesus be just another day? When could something like we're celebrating today be just another day? When it has no historical context. When it's just a day where we come and celebrate Jesus without historical context. So today, I wanna give us some historical context. Do something a little bit different, maybe than what you've experienced on an Easter Sunday. Have you ever been to a movie sitting there reclined next to a total stranger who's crunching on their popcorn? I'm sorry, I'm digressing into one of my pet peeves. But have you've ever been to a movie, right, and it jumps right into it, whether it's an action movie or a dramatic movie or a comedy, and it's just right into it and you're all into it, and then all of a sudden it just stops and there's a slow fade and it says, 10 years earlier. Like, I hate that. Like, Whoa. Like, I'm into this. I don't want to go back 10 years earlier. And yet, context is everything when we're talking about something as powerful and memorable As the resurrection, what happened before is crucial to better understanding the current moment. And in the case of the resurrection, we could use all of biblical human history as a proof of the crucialness of of better understanding what and why Jesus went through and why he did what he did and why the resurrection was necessary. Romans 8 or Romans 6 says this in verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in death like this, like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. So we come in today... And we celebrate the new life of Jesus or the new life that we have in Jesus. And yes, what a powerful time of worship. Man, I was, I was through the roof in the first song, thanking God for what he's done and that we can be alive and through what he has done through the cross and the resurrection. And so we come into a day and we, and we celebrate because we are the resurrected people. But what preceded that moment makes this all the more important in how we live. So slow fade. Seven days earlier, Palm Sunday, the gospel writers both in Luke and John tell us that people were there with palm branches and cloaks just spreading them out on the road leading into Jerusalem as Jesus was riding in. Kind of like a red carpet, right? Here's the red carpet rolled out for you, Jesus, and they're celebrating and they're screaming out and and praising with passion, Hosanna! Hosanna! It was a huge celebration. It was a big party, a big parade, if you will. And today, kind of like today, there's a huge celebration going on all over the world for what Christ has done. But we all know at celebrations there are all kinds of people present. We know at all kinds of parades and parties there's all kinds of people present, right? There are people who are there who don't know why they're there. What's going on? And they're just there, so they just join on in. And there are people that know why they're there. There are people there that are there for good reasons, and there are people that are there for for bad reasons. There are people that are there who are not having any fun, and there are people who are having lots of fun. In this case, there are people present in this day that were having zero fun. They were angry. The Pharisees were angry because of this Hosanna that was being shouted. Let's see if we can understand why. Because again, context is important to what we celebrate today so that it's not just another day. Luke 19, 38 reads, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Hosanna literally means blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this exclamatory phrase that everybody was shouting and that everybody was singing was a major issue because it was meant for a real king, a king who was supposed to be Israel's savior, It's a phrase that's found in the Hebrew Scriptures in Psalm 118 that they're quoting that says basically, God grant us victory, give us salvation and success. And then in verse 26 of Psalm 118, it says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're just singing this and quoting this. We want salvation in the king that has come and we want success. However, there was nothing victorious and successful about a guy riding into town on a donkey. That's why the Pharisees are telling Jesus, stop this craziness. In the next verse in this particular narrative, they're saying, hey, do you hear what they're saying about you? They're saying that you're the king of kings riding into the town on this colt of an ass. I mean, do you hear what they're saying about you? Stop the madness. Tell them to shut up. And Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah, so he says to them, I tell you this, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. He had, in fact, come to Jerusalem to be the savior of those people, to be the savior of the world. But there was a problem with that as well. That's why, in verse 41, the scripture says, As he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and Jesus wept over it. Why did he weep? He wept because he knew that they wanted victory and they needed salvation and they wanted salvation, and the way that it was going to be coming was very different than what they expected. How many of you know from experience that sometimes what you want from God and what you get from God are very different? How many of you know from experience what you want from God and sometimes how it comes is very different. But let me tell you this, whatever you get from God is far better than whatever you wanted in the first place. But sometimes we don't see it. In this case, salvation was what everybody wanted. Salvation is what everybody needed, but the way Jesus was about to bring that salvation, in essence, how the people would get that salvation in Christ, was going to be an issue. Why? Because it didn't look successful. And they were saying, we want salvation and success. That was what the scripture promises. That's what we know about God in the past. We want salvation and success at least how they measured success. And we can't get too down on the disciples then, because if you're a disciple of Jesus today, we're pretty much the same way. Like how we measure success and what success looks like in the kingdom of God are sometimes very different. The way God does things that don't always look successful, the way we measure success, sometimes bothers us if we're honest. See, we need God to save us from all kinds of situations. I'm not talking about salvation in that moment where you gave your life to Jesus. I'm not talking about that conversion moment. We all need Jesus for that. But after that, as we continue to work at our salvation, there's constantly things that we're asking God to help save us from, like a relationship issue or something financial that's going on or something maybe that's going on in our health that we need God to help us. Jesus would you save us. And a lot of times the way that he does it looks nothing like what we expected. And at times, right, we're praising just like these people were seven days prior to the resurrection. Praising God. And maybe you came in here this morning that same way. Praising God and you sense his presence. And you're like, yes, God, I believe in you. And I know you're going to come through. But it's tinged with a little bit of expectation of how you think he's going to do it. Problematically, our expectations and how we measure victory and success cause us not to see our salvation the way God often brings it. Or, We don't like the way that he brings it, even if we see it. So here's what the people gathered that day wanted. They wanted, as I said, salvation and success. And as they're praising, there's an expectation of what that's going to look like, meaning they wanted the Messiah to come into town to kick the Romans in the teeth and to put them into power. That's what they wanted. And that's still kind of what we want deep in our hearts if we're honest. They wanted the Messiah to do what he'd always done, that that the Savior, if you will, to do what he'd always done, like David had done and like Joshua had done and like Moses had done. They wanted salvation and success to come like it always had by force. Like, let's bring a plague, let's split a sea, let's drown an army, let's have a Jericho style butt whooping. That's what we want. That's what their history encouraged them would happen. It's what their history encouraged them to believe. But this is why context matters, church. Because sometimes history is meant just to remind, not to repeat. Sometimes history is meant just to remind us of who God is and not to repeat what God has done. And here's the case for this in this situation, because remembering is imperative to the Christian. It is the normative practice of the Christian life to remember what Christ has done. It's meant to reinforce our trust in a faithful God, remembering more about who God is, a God who saves, than how he brought about that salvation. In this case, the salvation had been brought by force, and now is going to be brought through the cross. See, remember what Christ has done so that you can trust what he's about to do. That's what Christianity is all about. What he went through so that you can persevere as well through what you're going through. Remember, God is the God who saves so that you can look for and see his salvation in a way that may be different than what you expect. So, why does remembering correctly matter? Because what they wanted was a repeat of history, and what they got was something that had never happened before and would never happen again, and is what the whole world desperately needed. They got a common carpenter riding into town, not on a noble steed, but on a donkey. They got a beaten and bloodied Nazarene, a man in Roman custody, a a man who was rejected by their own religious leaders, traded in essence for a a well-known insurrectionist named Barabbas. They wanted a matchless king, but instead they saw a beaten blasphemer. Or so they thought. Sadly, blessed is he, seven days prior, turned in to crucify him on Friday. It was a shout of passion, and what they wanted, listen to me, what they wanted was so far less than what they truly needed and what they got, and they missed it. I'm telling you, church, there are some times that what you want is so far less than what you need and what God wants to give you, and we miss it because we have some expectation of how God has done things in the past, and we're expecting him to do the same way in the present, and he's doing something new, and he's doing something different, and he's doing something in a way that maybe we see him in a way we've never seen him before, but we have to have eyes to be able to see it. And when it comes to victory and success, if we think about it, not much has changed for us today. We still want a politically powerful king. We still think power and control is the way to victory. We still think force is the way to success. And Jesus came to be the servant of all. Jesus was going to the cross to win the ultimate victory over sin and hell and death and the grave with his resurrection. And the masses missed it. What we, along with the church all over the world today, celebrate the resurrection was in no way the means by which these people thought that Jesus was coming to save them. But he did. Because of Christ's victory on the cross, we can now be the victorious church in the earth that God has called us to be. But what does that look like? That's the problem, I think. Sometimes what we think that the victorious church is supposed to look keeps us from actually being the victorious church that God's called us to be. Remembering what led up to the resurrection is imperative because here's who we are. We are still people of the cross. That's who the church is. We are still formed and refined in the crucibles of life. We are still called to live a cruciform life that we've been saved to live. And this is important to remember because if you're like me, victory in the name of Jesus is still hard for me to see at times. Like the ways and the means of God's victory in my life sometimes are hard to see. And when I don't see what God sees, I can respond in ungodly ways. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm always not, I don't always feel like I'm winning at life. Oh, yes, you should be, Pastor. No, I don't always feel like I'm living the blessed life. Oh, but we are. I get that. But I'm telling you, there are days where I feel like I'm getting punched in the face and I'm taking an L for the kingdom of God. Anybody else there? But this day is known as the triumphal entry, right? And it didn't lead to a coronation. It led to a crucifixion. And Jesus knew it. He knew this was about to happen. That's why he is weeping. He saw what was coming. He saw his murder. He saw the destruction of Jerusalem that was going to take place 40 years later. And the Bible says he wept. I'll read it again from Luke. And he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city and he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. So in the midst of all this praise and all this adulation, all this worship, if you will, there's blindness and there's animosity. Yes, from the Pharisees, but get this. Even those that are praising Jesus and know or think they know why they're praising Jesus, even those people, the Scripture says, are blind to what God's doing. I mean, is that just not sobering right there? John 12, 16 says, at first his disciples did not understand all this, what Christ was doing, what was going on that day. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. His own disciples are blind to what God is really up to and how he's going to go about it, which is a scary prospect to me. Because I think, as I said a moment ago, we've all been there when we're at church or we're maybe somewhere else in the privacy of our of our lives, and we're worshiping and we're praising God, and he shows up. Maybe I love that corporate worship time, right, just like we experienced this morning where God shows up, and he shows up differently and in a different way in the corporate gathering than he does when I'm all by myself. It's it's something powerful that you can only experience through the body and the church and the body of Christ. And he shows up, and it's in those moments where like, yes, God, I know you're gonna going to come through. Yes God, you're going to be the one who delivers me from this and saves me from this whatever it is. And then you don't get what you thought you were going to get when you were praising him that previous Sunday. You think you know how you're going to get what you want, and this can be a precarious and dangerous place for us as Christians. Why? Because when things don't go like you think that they should, and God doesn't come through the way that you think that he should, we get disappointed. Anybody ever been disappointed with God? And if you don't raise your hand, you're a liar. Because God doesn't think like we think. He doesn't act the way we act. The way that he does things isn't the way that we do things. And so there are times where we have, we've expected something, and we've asked for something, or we believe for something, and it didn't happen the way that we thought that it would. We were praising him and crying out Hosanna, and then it happened in a way that I would have never expected. Disappointments like this, well, that's not how I thought this was going to turn out, God. Well, that's not what I expected you to do, Lord, and if I'm honest, I'm a little sad about it. If I'm honest, God, I'm a little, I'm a little angry about this. And listen, that's okay. You take those emotions. I mean, one third of the Psalms are laments. There's a whole book of lamentations. You take that to the cross. You take that to the Savior. You take that to God. He can handle that. But you take those feelings to Jesus in the cross, and he will help you. But here's the problem. A lot of times we don't. And if we don't, and if we stay there with that disappointment, that disappointment will lead to disillusionment. And here's the problem with disillusionment. It's a lot like disappointment, but it just carries on. And it keeps kind of going on for a lengthy period of time. And here's what we begin to say now. Well, this is how it's going to be, I guess. Well, Lord, I guess this is, I shouldn't expect anything different from you. And all of a sudden, we begin to assign things to God's character that are untrue because of our experience. We begin to believe lies about God and his goodness and who he really is. We allow our experiences to begin to inform our beliefs more than we allow God's word to inform our beliefs about him. We're disillusioned. And if we stay there, and I want you to know, at any point in our lives, we could be going down this progression and we can immediately repent and run into the arms of Jesus because he's well able to handle that. But if we stay in that place of disillusionment, eventually it leads to despair and that's a place of hopelessness. You know what? I, it's never gonna change. Not only did I not expect you to come through and well, this isn't how I planned it and, and well, I guess I shouldn't expect anything more but now I don't ever expect anything more. I'm hopeless and if anything people of the resurrection are to be filled with hope. The hope of glory. That is not just about the present. It's about what is in the future because of what Christ has done and our receptivity to the gospel. We become people of hope. And if we're not careful, we can become those who are despairing and a loss of hope. And that's not who we're called to be. And after despair and a loss of hope, there's only one thing left, and that is to desert. And I'm not talking about eating something sweet. I'm talking about leaving God's presence. And what we do, I'm leaving, I'm done. God, I don't even know if you're real or if, or if you just don't care or what it is, but I'm done with you and I'm done with the church. Disappointment, disillusionment, despair, and desertion. And if you think that's exaggerating, if you think it's hyper, hyper, hyperbole, let me tell you, this is exactly what took place in a matter of days from Hosanna disappointment, disillusionment, despair, and to crucify him and desertion. And if we're not careful... If we're not diligent, if we're not attentive to the Holy Spirit, if we're not people of the word who love God and love other people, if we're not people who are committed to the church and the mission of the church, we will end up following the same progression, miss what Jesus is doing, and walk away from his greater purposes for our lives. We will end up all alone. You see, I want you to understand that Jesus was all alone so that you and I don't have to be today. Thank God, knowing all of this, although he wept, and knowing how fickle we are even today, God poured out his mercy. Jesus was still merciful to us. Aren't you glad for that? His mercies, the word says, are new every morning. Yes, God is sovereign, but He is also merciful. He is both and. and I'm glad, because if that's me and I'm Jesus riding into a town, and it's probably you, I'm like, I'm not doing this crucifixion thing for a bunch of disappointed, disillusioned, whiny deserters. But Jesus is nothing like me. He's amazing, He's loving, He's kind and He's merciful. And gratefully, he was moved by mercy and obediently submitted to the Father so that we can celebrate the resurrection today with gratitude and awe. Yes. For just a few more moments while I still have you here and before we go to a second service, I want to talk about the mercy of Jesus. Because as those who are people of the resurrection, we are to live like the one who was resurrected first, Jesus. And Jesus was moved to tears by mercy. Listen, knowing what he knew, in verse 41 of that scripture in Luke, says that he wept over the city. I want you to think about that. When was the last time that you wept over the brokenness of our city? And it doesn't mean that you're hopeless, It doesn't mean that you're despairing. It means that you are moved with mercy by the brokenness and the destruction that you see around you, and it doesn't take us looking very far to see it. Jesus is moved with mercy. He really feels the sorrow of the situation of what's about to happen, and no doubt because, yes, there is this deep inner peace. He knows what God's about to do, and he knows God's in control, and he knows God's purposes are going to come to pass. You can know all of that and still weep, my friends. Jesus did. And if Jesus wept, I think we probably should as well. Weep with mercy over the brokenness that surrounds us. Pray that God would give us tears for the brokenness that surrounds us, for the people that desperately need the power of the resurrection in their lives because there's so much pain and so much suffering in the world. Pray that God would help us as a church, as his people, to be moved just like Jesus by mercy. We also see Jesus was moved to self-denial by mercy. See, Jesus moved intentionally towards suffering. He knew exactly what was about to happen. He's entering Jerusalem to die. He'd already said it was going to happen. He knew it was going to happen, and he did it anyway. That is the epitome of self-denial. That's the way we follow Jesus. We see a need and we move towards it. For Jesus, it was seeing the sin of the world, the broken bodies, the destruction, and the misery of hell, and He moved towards it. And we do just like Jesus. We move towards the need, no matter the cost. We move towards the need in mercy. We deny ourselves the comforts and the ease of avoiding other people's pain. We embrace it. Jesus' tears were not just emotions. They were tears of a man who was moving toward need. We need to be a church, a resurrected people who are filled with mercy and move towards the brokenness around us. And finally, Jesus was moved to action by mercy. See, mercy doesn't just feel, though it does. And mercy doesn't just deny itself, though it does. Mercy actually helps other people. If we're going to be those that are ministers of mercy, which is what we are as people of the resurrection, then we have to be those that actually help others through that mercy that we extend. Jesus was dying in our place that we might be forgiven and have eternal life. That's how helpful he was to us. So as those who have received mercy and the help in time of need that we have, we give that help and we give that mercy as people of the resurrection. Which leads me to the final question, which was actually the first question I asked you, when can something as miraculous, powerful, and world-changing as the resurrection of Jesus Christ be just another day? When it has no historical context, which I hope I've given you a little bit more of today, but also when it has no future consequence? See, this day can become just another day if we don't understand why it happened and if we don't live as if it happened, as people of the resurrection. See, if we're not going to be people of the resurrection and how we live and how we love and how we extend mercy, then this day is just another celebratory day. We might as well cheer for the winner of the masters because it's the same thing. It's just a celebration. We are here, but are we here for the right reasons? Are we celebrating the resurrection, understanding why Christ did what he did? The context, what happened seven days and what happened in all of history beforehand? Or are we here out of compulsion, family tradition, guilt, or some odd thought that if I will go to church today that God would love me more but see the resurrection is actually proof that there's nothing that you can do to make god love you more or make him love you less first john 4 says this is how god showed his love among us That he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. See, what happened before the resurrection reminds us that as Christians, we follow in his footsteps. The footsteps of a savior and how now after the resurrection, we walk with that same power into places and situations that others might run from. We persevere through the pain of difficulty and trial and tribulation that we will go through in this life in order to experience what? The joy of obeying the heavenly father, which is exactly what Jesus did on this day. Then he, Hebrew says what? That for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorned his shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. There are some things that we go through that are painful and difficult today, but it is yet not exceed to us or even thought of how much joy we're going to receive in the future because of it. Here's what I want you to understand today. In light of the resurrection, you can't always get what you want. There's a song like that, right? But you can always get what you need. In Christ alone, you're not going to always get what you want, but you're always going to get what you need. And here's the amazing thing about that. Let me just tell you this. Scripture says that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than you even think you want. Let me put it that way. More than you could think or imagine what you want in this life. God is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than that. So it says in that scripture, according to the power that is at work within us. That's how he does that. What is that power? It's the resurrection power. And that to him, because of that resurrection power, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and ever. Amen. I've got a little chart and I've just got a couple of seconds but I'll take a couple of minutes. See, I I just want you to see this because I think it's so important today as people of the resurrection. And yeah, let's go to that one. This was the finalist. This is what people want. They wanted success. And what they got was Salvation. They wanted success and salvation, and what they got was a Savior that came to save them. But here's the thing. It was successful far more exceedingly abundantly than they could even think or ask what they wanted because they became a joint heir with Christ. What they wanted was a position because that's what they thought would give them Peace. Well, if we're in charge, if we got the power, if we can make all the rules and we can make all the laws and we can make all the policies, then we'll have peace. No, there's only one way to peace, and it's through Jesus. And we get that, but we get far more than that. We don't just get peace. We get to be peacemakers. They wanted prosperity. And and please forgive me, if you're new to the church or you've been around the church and you've heard that message before, that somehow everything's supposed to be overflowing, including your bank accounts, that's not the gospel that Jesus brought. It's not the gospel that Paul preached. They wanted prosperity. Instead, they get provision. But it's far more than what we can even think because it is all of our needs according to the riches of God through Jesus Christ. They wanted defeated oppressors. They wanted the Romans put in their place. But what they got was a reconciled family. And they got far more than that. They got an eternal family that would last forever. And basically what Jesus is saying, and he said it throughout his times of teaching, everything that you've lost, even father, mother, home, whatever you've lost, is going to be far exceeded by what you're going to gain, by what I'm going to bring through the cross and the resurrection. And that's an eternal family that is far bigger than what you have right here. And then what they wanted was a vanquished foe. Defeat our enemy. But the enemy wasn't the enemy that they thought. Instead, they got a victorious friend who was Jesus, a friend of sinners. And what that victorious friend did was he gave them eternal home because he vanquished a foe they didn't even know they had. Church, this means that we should live a life of great consequence. Right, this day would not just be another day on the calendar of celebration of the resurrection, because we understand the historical context and where, why, and why it had to happen. And now, because of what has happened in the resurrection and receiving that and being people of the resurrection, we will live lives holy unto God with the power of the resurrection at work in us. Romans says, if the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us, then our lives should be different. We were all dead in our sin, but now through Jesus Christ, we've been raised to a new life. And listen, you're still going to struggle. You're still going to fail at times. You're still going to fall. And we're going to be disappointed at times, and maybe we move into being despairing and hopeless. But I want you to understand that through the work of the Holy Spirit, we can grow in sanctification and in holiness and walking in the power of the resurrection. God's saving work is an amazing work. That's what the gospel says, so that everyone who would call on his name by grace through faith could receive the salvation and receive far more than what we thought we wanted, far more and exceedingly more than what we could even imagine.